Well, welcome to the special Easter edition, episode 45 of The Professor and the Hack. I am the Hack, Hugh Rimmonson, with me, the Professor uh, Peter Van Onselen, uh, the national political editor for Channel 10. Peter. Uh, G'day, Hugh. Momentous weeks, but uh, who would have thought that you'd see a Conservative government putting through what's essentially a welfare measure for $130 billion in six months? Well, here's my question for you. Everyone's lauding their decision-making. Labor obviously wanted them to go further with casuals, but they didn't block it when the government refused to because nobody wanted to get in the road of this. But my question for you, Hugh, is the government have done this, as you say, a Conservative government, you wouldn't expect them to go down this path, but the crisis has brought about unexpected events. Uh, and as I think Josh Frydenberg says, I think he was quoting what John Howard told him, don't let ideology get in the road at a time like this. But could Labor have done this, Hugh? If Labor had spent this much money, even now in the midst of the crisis, would they have been attacked for it? Because they spent a mere fraction of this in the midst of the GFC and were attacked in the midst of it when it came to the second tranche of their stimulus spending. And here we are, and everyone seems to be saying that the coronavirus is a bigger crisis than the GFC was. People at the time of the GFC were saying this was the biggest crisis since the Great Depression. Same rhetoric we're hearing about the coronavirus. Could Labor have spent the sheer quantum of money, 200 billion all up, not just the 130 billion jobs package, and gotten away with it and not been criticised? Well, uh, you'd think that the discipline that's on, particularly the uh, conservative right of the uh, coalition, would have blown if it was Labor doing it. There's also the question, because we're looking at alternative histories here, whether Labor would have structured, for example, a job keeper um, uh, fund in exactly the same way, such that it goes through mm. the tax office to the businesses, as opposed to essentially being welfare payments uh, to you know the, the people who've lost their jobs, and and that is central to the design, isn't it? What Scott Morrison has said is that it's designed in this way so that it doesn't become a structural new payment. The, the, the enhanced job seeker allowances, he's going to have a good time trying to wind that one back. But um, but essentially, they have designed it quite cleverly, haven't they? So that oh, yeah, they uh, have. people don't feel as if it's coming to their pockets. Would Labor have done it the same way? We're, we're talking alternative histories there, aren't we? Well, and, and that is interesting as a point that you make about the different way you structure it, because yes, Wayne Swan and Kevin Rudd were attacked at the time for the second stimulus package, not the first. Malcolm Turnbull is the then opposition leader got on board, as did the Liberals with the first stimulus, but not the second. So they were attacked at the time, but where they were really attacked in a more heavy, widespread way with media backing was when misspent money was revealed over time things like the pink backs and elements of the building the education revolution, but also the criticism from fiscal conservatives that money was rolling out the door when it no longer needed to roll out the door because the crisis had been averted. That will be interesting if there are any elements of that in all of these packages by the government. So, for example, if they don't wind up some of what they've put in place quickly enough, if conservatives within their own ranks, for example, start to say, and the IPA have done a little bit of this already, haven't they? They start to say, well, you know, the crisis hasn't lasted the six months that was expected um, if it is shorter than that. Or if they leave spending in place further down the track uh, and therefore get accused of, of, if you like, doing what Rudd and, and Swan were accused of by some quarters of not winding the money back quickly enough. Well, it certainly would have been more difficult. We've seen from Anthony Albanese that he wanted to uh, to cast the net wider. He wanted 
to see uh, people on student visas and temporary visas to be uh, caught up and, and be the beneficiaries uh, of the JobKeeper payments. He also wanted uh, another more than a million people who were shorter term casuals who hadn't had uh, a full 12 months with a particular employer. Now, at the moment, they're sort of cast out to the wind. And, and so if Labor was there, they might have been under much more pressure to try to include them into it. But that, that itself would have blown it out, wouldn't it, by an enormous amount? Well, yeah, it absolutely would have. I mean, that's the other point here. And some Liberals are already making this point uh, fairly or unfairly. Labor, had they designed this, going back to where you started, Hugh, would have designed it differently, but they say also would have spent a lot more money. And, and there seems to be some evidence to support that, I have to say. Uh, maybe that would be a good thing, the extra money being spent. We'll see, depending on how this goes from here. Uh, but they would have done it differently and they probably would have spent more money. It, yeah. it depends very much on whether your perspective is that of someone who's uh, who's been a casual worker, but not for 12 months with one employer. <laughs> that sure is very true. Have a different very view true. Of it. All those many people who are here on student visas with an opportunity to work a little bit and they're now in a lot of trouble. I've, I've met and spoken to some of those and feeling completely cast adrift. At the moment, there's no, um, you know, they really have very few options. And in many cases, it's very hard for them to get back home to their home countries now. So um, you mentioned the IPA. And we're seeing from senior business figures a lot of pressure. The Australian is, is amplifying many of these complaints. The desire to try and get business back into business to lift some of these restrictions uh, as soon as possible. Uh, but also we saw in recent days from the IPA's policy director, Gideon Rosner, I think is his name, a uh, tricked up little video in which he insisted that uh, the it was time now to get back to normal, that people uh, deserved a thriving economy and a vibrant society. Um, to my mind, blowing such credibility as the IPA has in what seemed to me to be a piece of irresponsible juvenilia uh, if I may front it that way, because um, just as we're starting to level off the curve and getting somewhere, you wouldn't think that to say, yes, we're going back to normal now, uh, oh. be on any way a sign that you're mature or wise. I oh, don't even get me started on the stupidity of of that video that was released. I mean, it was attention grabbing and attention seeking, but it was not only timed badly with the health messages as well as uh, if you like, you know, the, 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 the bending of the curve that we were experiencing because of the very measures they were calling to be lifted and lifted too soon. But it also coincided with some people praising Sweden for not doing what we've done and doing it quite differently at the exact moment that the curve was pushing back upwards for Sweden. And they were actually suddenly facing a surge of deaths and infections, um, proving the exact opposite point of what the IPA was arguing for. I mean, there was a risk that Scott Morrison was going to be too late on this. Full credit to him, he ended up not being too late. I think he could have been earlier, but he certainly wasn't too late. And hopefully that's where it stays. But by God, he would have been too early, wouldn't he, uh, if he'd been following the IPA's advice. And we would be thrusting ourselves back into the eye of the storm when it comes to this virus. But there's no getting away from the amount of pressure uh, particularly from business, who's got the hotlines into the treasurer's office, into the prime minister's office, enormous capacity uh, to make their arguments directly to the corridors of power. And quite reasonably, they are concerned about what is going on. If you look at Seek, for example, the, um, the online job placement business has released uh, 
where job ads are now compared with 12 months ago, in Victoria, they're down 71% overall. Uh, in in um, New South Wales, they're down over 65%. The national figure is over 65%. And in some areas, obviously in sport, they've got a 97.7% reduction in, in jobs, in media, in marketing, communications, in sales. Those jobs are disappearing. And that surely is a matter of great anxiety. How do you match that when you've got the health minister, Greg Hunt, saying if we were to take this off, and rely on some kind of herd immunity argument, which is still here out there. Herd immunity says, and no one knows exactly because we're still learning about this virus, requires 60% of us to be infected. At one, that's 15 million Australians. At a 1% fatality rate, as he says, that's a horrendous number of people dying. Let's do the math. 1% of 15 million is 150,000 dead Australians in order to achieve herd immunity. And those are the two poles of that argument. Um, how is Scott Morrison going to manage those competing pressures, do you think, over the, over the, the months ahead? Well, I, I think if, if we get anywhere near the idea of herd immunity at 60% infection and anywhere near a mortality rate of 1% and therefore a death rate of 150,000, I think that will come as a real shock to people, obviously, because at the moment we're at just over 50 people, I think, and we're talking about having you know, gotten through the worst of it is, is some of the rhetoric that's coming. We don't have to get to that scenario of herd immunity and only a 1% mortality rate for people to wonder what's going on. I mean, for example, herd immunity, if that happens, even over an extended period of time, and even if we somehow eke out a mortality rate of one-third of a percent, which would have us at the leading edge of the world, that would still be 50,000 people. So that's your point, I think, Hugh, to some extent. Is, is, is herd immunity feasible? Yeah, and the, the total death toll, as, as we are speaking to each other, globally is about 90,000, and it's a, mm. it's a pandemic of horrendous proportions. So you imagine uh, anything up to you know, almost double that figure in Australia alone to achieve this herd immunity, and you can see why uh, there is an extraordinarily strong counter-argument to those who want to ease off the restrictions uh, early. And, and, and part of the point here, of course, is that you know, it, it is great news when we start being told that infection rates on a daily basis are potentially dropping below 100 at the same time as the overall recovery from the coronavirus is now in the thousands, well over 2,000. That's great news, but unless this virus is getting eradicated somehow, and it would seem that a vaccine in 12 to 18 months is the only way for that to happen, unless that is happening, then the reality is, even if there's some slowness on the way through, we are going to face a significant rise in the death rate. It's just a matter of whether we're managing it or not. And that comes back to this whole argument of trying to bend the curve to be able to ensure that the health system doesn't get out of control. Because Hugh, when you even talk about a 1% mortality rate, whatever the infection rate, uh, that is us doing well. You look over at Britain or at Italy or Spain or now the US, when the infections get out of control uh, and the health system struggles to cope with the people being admitted, that's when that mortality rate goes up substantially. And that's when you really, really have a health crisis. Yeah, and, and a clue that we're not out of it really comes from Gladys Berejiklian, the New South Wales Premier, right now as we speak. 
there are 36 people in New South Wales in intensive care with COVID-19, 36. Now, she has organised the doubling, more or less, of intensive care beds to a little over 1,000 available intensive care beds in New South Wales. From 36, Mm. she's doubled it to there. She is talking about tripling or even quadrupling to 4,000. You don't go to that enormous policy lifting, the hard work to get to 4,000 ICU beds if you think that the numbers of people needing them is not going to rise up beyond a couple of dozen. Why would you go to the bother? So plainly, the policymakers in New South Wales and the same as somewhat similar is going on in Victoria and elsewhere, still believe that this pandemic has the potential to cause uh, huge overloads onto our health system that we need to prepare for, um, which is pretty indicative that uh, they perceive that uh, the health risks, we look at the economic risks, the health risks remain acute. They certainly do. We've got to take a, a short break, but when we come back, I'd be keen to talk about a, a whole range of things, but let's, let's maybe start, if we can, on schools uh, and what happens there and the impact of this uh, on, on children. Uh, I mean, I've seen it with mine. You've no doubt seen it with yours. Uh, this really is something that is hard for them to, to front up to, both in terms of their social lives, what they see uh, on their parents' faces as they confront this. Back in just a moment. I've got to produce a dish that can win me the competition. It has to be a dessert. Reynolds created some of the most incredible desserts in MasterChef history. People still remember me for the dessert king, but... I just feel a bit nervous because I've got a lot of pressure on my shoulders. I didn't realise how stressful it'll be. Reynolds, all eyes are on you, my friend. I just want to show Australia how far I've come. Hopefully I've done enough. I just need this dessert to be perfect. Perfect. MasterChef starts 7.30 Eastern Monday. Welcome back. You're listening to The Professor and The Hack. Hugh Rimmington, I'm The Hack with uh, Peter Van Odsel and The Professor. And uh, you mentioned as we went to that break there about schools and uh, you've got young kids, I've got young kids. Um, things are getting a little crazy. What? <laughs> I mean, what can we do? There's no decision made in New South Wales as to what term two might look like. Uh, what are the choices and how do they get navigated? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, uh, I mean, look, you know, our family's going stir crazy as are a lot of them. And, and we're actually, uh, you know, we're, we're in a quite fortunate position at the moment because um, both my wife and I have been busy in our respective works. We still have enormous flexibility to be able to be at home. And our daughters at ages 13 and 11 are just at that self sufficient phase. Uh, where, you know, if we do have to dash out, there can be elements of that and it's manageable. And we're also fortunate because they're both uh, at a very good private school, which has very good online learning capabilities. So it moved to that right before the school holiday period. Uh, and I was blown away, quite frankly, at how, uh, how good the Zoom uh, videoing was and, you know, music lessons uh, through a virtual environment. You know, they even had a school assembly in a virtual environment, which just shocked me. So we're, we're, my point is we're in the lucky zone as a family in terms of managing all of this between our work lives, our social lives and, and their schooling. But it's still hard, you know, like hard on the kids I mean, because I can see, you know, my 13-year-old in particular, we let her, uh, you know, go for a walk with a friend, walking their dogs, uh, social distancing and all the rest of it the other day for exercise. 
and it was their, it was it was her first opportunity to do that. And, you know, it felt like a privilege for her doing something that normally I'd be struggling to kick her out of the house to do because she'd have so many other things she'd be wanting to do with her friends uh, in, in a play sense. So, you know, you see that and, and that's before you even get to, you know, the, the missed relationships right across the school, the importance of the socialisation of that, what impact does online learning have? It's good, but it's not as good, I would argue. And, and that's before you then go through what they see you know, with, with their parents, you know, we're, we're, we're a home that talks yeah. about this stuff quite openly and, and that's got to be hard as well. And, and I say all of that, Hugh, cognizant that we are, if you like, almost the, 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 the luckiest of the lucky in the context of what other families are facing at the moment. And it's, it's, and it's just started. Yeah, look, it, uh, the, I think the fact that it's just started is something that weighs on a lot of parents' uh, minds. My my 10-year-old son said words I never thought I'd hear him say uh, the other day when he said, I really miss school. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, he likes school, but uh, there you are. But, but then, Can I, can I jump in and just, say this? I, I, I yeah. just want to say this to you because, you know, I, I outline that as my situation. And, you know, listeners would know your, your situation is extraordinarily tough, you know, with what you're going through uh, with your wife. You've been unbelievably brave and open sharing it I've seen on, on, on social media and, and elsewhere. Um, and obviously, you know, her bravery as well. And Chiefly hers, you, I think. mate, going through what you guys are going through would be incredibly hard in normal circumstances, much less in a circumstance like this, you know? Look, we, we're still employed. I, I think there, there's always someone worse off than you are. And uh, we're lucky we're a, we're a tight unit. Um, uh, my wife is going through chemo as people regularly listening to this will know, um, will be, uh, you know, she's tired. There's no doubt about that. It's bloody hard mm. yards. Uh, but, um, you know, for the moment we're holding, we're holding it together, but on the subject of the education, we're lucky. We don't have someone in their HSEC year, the final year. We don't have anyone yeah. in that situation. And, and so, you know, we're sort of wondering if they, if we had to repeat a year, would it be that disastrous? Not absolutely, maybe for, for my tenure, who knows? But I'm in, a, in an educational sense. What concerns me about this is nationally is essentially a class or privilege barrier because your circumstances, as you'd be the first to admit, are, as you do admit, it, are, are those really of the, of the lucky ones. Um, mm. And I'm wondering about um, those families that may not have computers at home. Uh, or particularly effective ones who don't have the, um, you know, the, the bandwidth because of where they are, or perhaps not even the computing power to do all these kinds of hookups. Uh, you don't have the computer skills or if something goes wrong where dad or mum could go in there and try and sort things out on the computer or with the schools themselves through lack of funding. Um, yeah. Don't have the ability to, uh, to pump out that education. So what happens there? Are we going to see from 2020... A, a group where the elite schools uh, are able to get through with difficulty, but nevertheless come out the other side, whereas those who've got none of those advantages, in fact, losing an entire year of education, um, you, you know, that, that these are serious concerns. Yeah, look, they are. And, 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 and you, you didn't even include in, in that matrix um, that, you know, people with mental health issues or levels of social dysfunction within families added to some of the other barriers, the many other barriers that you've mentioned. I think that there's 
so much there to unpack that, that people are well, going to face. Well, loss of income is enormous. Oh, overwhelmed. Absolutely. Overwhelmed. Uh, and all of that added up, um, it, you know, it, it, it begs the question, well, it, it, it leads to the hope, would be the way to put it, uh, that we're facing at most, with any luck, one term online, which it would seem we are for most people at least, you know, even if there's schooling face-to-face as an option, it's for people in essential services or without the capacity to, to go any other way. It looks like most kids across most spectrums are going to be doing online learning at least for second semester or second term, I should say, and we hope that we can then break out of that for everyone's sake in terms three and four, and that would at least give them the second half of the year to turn 2020 into a somewhat normal year. But I don't know how realistic even that is because, you know, it may well just be wishful thinking that by the halfway mark of this year, we're not still in a lockdown style environment or, or if not you yeah. lockdowns where it ebbs and flows, that's the difficulty, you know, school comes back, but then there's some sort of outbreak that closes it down and then it comes back again at the end of that. I mean, the level of disruption is is constant, uh, and yeah, teach, it's teachers constant. get sick or whatever, and then and then other exactly. teachers get spooked, and and you know again we go Premier Berejiklian saying that we need to maintain social distancing until a cure or a vaccine is found. Now, on increasingly the evidence and the discussions that are coming from the medical experts is that there's no cure coming anytime soon. There may be some antivirals that might have some efficacy that may may emerge. Um, but a vaccine, you know, some are saying, look, there are coronaviruses out there. They've never managed to get a vaccine to, to knock them out. Um, mm. And the 18 months itself might be too, uh, you know, too optimistic. So if you're looking at that and thinking about the amount of economic non-activity over 18 months being now, um, you know, it's, it's funny because we feel as if we've made enormous and governments have made enormous, difficult uh unprecedented decision making to cope with an, a, a huge thing and yet i can't help feeling that it's nothing compared with what they're going to have to do in the last quarter of this year the six months will have gone through of the uh the job keeper 130 billion dollars will have been burnt off and yet i just have a feeling that the underlying issues of the disease itself uh will not have been resolved by then and well, I can't... yeah Sorry, I was just going to say on exactly that, like where, what, how do we put the economy back together um, is the point that you're making, you know, and, and, and how much more money needs to be spent to maybe hold it together before we put it <laughs> together. It was, I can't remember if I said this on one of our other podcasts, I mentioned it on, on morning radio on the ABC, a minister in the government made the observation to me uh, that putting the economy back together with the way that it's getting broken up because of this crisis is akin to pulling apart a car, all the various components and parts and spreading them across a field and then having no instruction manual because it's never been done before and bringing in someone who's never built a car before and saying to them, find all the parts and put them all together in the right place and let's then turn on the key and see how we go. And, yeah. And uh, the key thing is, is that it takes investment for you to, you know, for business uh, to, to, to take your metaphor and bend it out of shape um, in order to put it back together again, will require fresh investment. Now at mm. the moment, uh, people with the money, the capital is terrified of investing. You're seeing money, you know, flee, um, the equity markets and all the rest of it, they're not going to be reinvesting until they're confident that um, 
they're in a position for us to be coming out the other side. And, uh, and until that time, uh, we're going to be in a, not a free fall is too dramatic a phrase, but like a, a long descending unpowered glide until the point at which uh, there's a sense that the virus is beatable, that, you know, that the, the corner is turned through whatever mechanism before you can start to put that investment to get back in again. And that'll be hodgepodge around the world. Some places with access to finances will get that going, but whole sections of the globe are going to really be knocked back, potentially mm. generations. And, and this is why I do think that we, we're at the beginning of the beginning. We're not even at the end of the beginning of understanding what this will do to us. Well, and, and on that, I mean, I, I, you know, I know that in your uh, journalistic career, you've spent a lot of time covering events abroad. The underdeveloped world uh, and the spread of this virus into, you know, not just Africa, but parts of Asia. And, and I wrote about this in The Australian the other day, into Indonesia, you know, the fourth most populated country on earth and very impoverished notwithstanding, you know, some rapid development in recent times in terms of economic growth. It's a very impoverished country. It's very dysfunctional across its political system as well as it's moved towards its embrace of a version of democracy and, and how it copes with the surge uh, as well as how these other underdeveloped countries cope with the surge of cases uh, where, you know, the mortality rate will inevitably, one assumes, be much higher because of the healthcare system uh, being that much worse than it is in developed countries. And we see developed countries struggling with their health system to cope with this virus. So, you know, that, that, that I think is the thing that is going to be incredibly uh, awful to see is, is just how much worse this is in some of those parts of the world, uh, which are mm. only just starting to be touched by it now. Well, India, which is soon to become the most populous mm. nation on earth, uh, COVID-19 is turning up even despite the fact there's very little testing going down in the slums of Mumbai, where there is a population density of over 250,000 people per square kilometre. Uh, there's no social distancing possible under those circumstances. So we're still at the beginning end of this. Um, I hate to be negative about it. Uh, it is Easter. Uh, the church doors are locked. Uh, the faithful, and, and they exist in number are going to have an Easter such as has never existed in any living memory. Even back in the days of the, of the plague, people would go to the churches to seek succor from, from God and to, and, and to beseech uh, God's intervention and such like. I'm not a religious man. But um, at the same time, we've got this particular Easter. All I can say is that faith and resurrection lie at the heart of the story. And uh, I think uh, resurrection, even more than faith, might be what uh, we're all going to be hoping for over the next few days. Yeah, that's right. Now, we've only got a couple of minutes left, Hugh, but before we uh, wrap up, the opposition, how can they, how do you think they're going? You know, I mean, I, it's, this is now politics that I'm talking about, but boy, it's yeah. tough for them, right? They, they want to hold a government to account. They've been excluded from things like the National Cabinet. Uh, they want to put their ideas forward, but they don't want to die in a ditch on them because then they get accused well, of just yeah. being oppositionists. Well, look, I, I, just on that, I've got to say that Christian Porter, I think, said a very poor thing. Uh, you know, he's handled a lot of things under great pressure, but he said a very poor thing when he was asked about Parliament coming back. And he said, 
uh, MPs have got better things to do than to sit in Parliament. And I thought... That yeah, I didn't, li- I didn't a, like that either. I didn't like it's that It's a either. fundamental yeah. break of the whole idea of separation of powers. The Parliament has a role to keep the executive in check. And essentially, if he was to say judges have got better things to do than to sit in courts, everyone would say that's an absurd statement. Judges, courts have got a role uh, as one of the pillars of government. The Parliament has a role as one of the pillars of government. Um, I'm surprised to hear that from a man who's not only the Attorney General, but the, the manager of government business, the leader of, of, of the government in, in the House. What, what, what did you make of that? Was, that? was that an off-the-cuff mark or you, remark, or do you think that that goes to his internal thinking and working? I think that he would acknowledge that it was a mistake, both in the PR of politics to have said it, but also in his philosophical understanding of political institutions. You know, Christian Porter is, is one of the more ideologically adroit and philosophically aware members of the parliament. You know, he's got a, um, a, a philosophical uh, master's from the London School of Economics. He, he's taken a real interest in it over the years. Uh, he is a believer in institutions and processes. But boy, that was, you know what I think it was, and I'm guessing here, uh, I know disclosure, you know, Christian Porter and I were friends before politics, actually, um, through debating circles at university. But I haven't asked him about this, but I will now. I think that that was a reflection of, of uh, if you like, somebody in the executive trying to deal with a crisis and momentarily forgetting that outcomes without process are not necessarily better if the process isn't there. And I think he was just in that moment of thinking, you know, bugger it all you lot, you know, I've got a lot on my plate. Jesus, we need to get this done. Stop haranguing us with little things like democracy. And I think on reflection, he would probably look back at that and think, gee, actually, you know what? That's uh, that's never a good thing when we let yeah, particularly, institutions particularly wane. coming from a man with his sophistication of understanding because there are those yeah. who lack any understanding of such things in politics and they'd be quite happy to uh, take him as an authority on that and to, uh, and to broadcast and amplify that, that position. And we really don't need that. A little bit of process even in a crisis can, uh, can be useful in binding us all uh, together to a common purpose, which is more than anything what we need right now. I think we're out of time, Peter. We are. Um, we for are. everyone listening, thanks for your... Uh, for sticking with us through these times and sometimes the digital breakup on these uh, remote podcasts that we're doing. But uh, hopefully there's something in it for you. And have a, a peaceful and uh, holy Easter, if that's your thing, and uh, some kind of a break if it's not your thing. And we'll talk to you soon. PVO, thanks again. Talk on the other side. listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. I'm Angela Bishop and for the past 30 years I've been lucky enough to interview some of the funniest, loveliest and zaniest celebrities around. There have been some cracker interviews, but what you see on TV is usually just a fraction of what's actually recorded. I've been looking back on some of my favourite interviews from the last three decades, and you're in for a treat. You're going to hear the best bits, worst bits, edited, unedited, all with a bit of a backstory from me. Find out what went off before the cameras went on.
This is Starstruck with me, Ange Bishop.